All right, if you have a Bible, why don't you uh, grab it and let's go to Mark chapter 11. We're out of 10. We're into chapter 11. So just a few more chapters left, which means a few more years left in the gospel of Mark. Um, You think I'm joking. Uh, This is a very familiar story. This is the story of the triumphal entry. In fact, uh, maybe your headline uh, is is the coming of Jesus or the coming of the king. Uh, Whatever it is, it's okay. We're going to get into all of that. Um, Sadly, this is uh, what we celebrate as, you know, like Palm Sunday. And that's it's actually next week, but we're going to celebrate a week early, I guess. Uh, In fact, what I may do is take this apart into two weeks and still talk about this next week. Uh, because there are some uh, elements to uh, an, an eschatological view, or that's just jargon that's uh, end times, that's in this passage. And I'll get a little bit into that uh, this morning uh, as well. So if you are there, if you don't know where that is, look in your uh, the beginning of the Bible, and there's like some pages that tells you where Mark is, or you could just read along on the screen in front of you. Mark chapter 11, verse number 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, and tie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they they told them that Jesus has said, and they they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna, in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem And went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. One more time, let's let's just go before the Lord before we kind of dive into this, and let's just ask him to bless our time together. Now, God, we just pray, God, that as we study, read your word, God, that it would come alive to us, that although I audibly spoke your word, Lord, Let the word of God read our lives, read our hearts, and and bring up to the surface what is not pleasing to you, that we may just leave this place looking at how glorious our King Jesus is. Would you, God, be mighty to save in this room, in this place? Would you restore? Would your church fall to her knees? And repentance and turn to you, O oh God, for our country's sake, for our state's sake, for our neighborhoods, for our family's sake, God. We pray these things in your precious name. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. 
me provide a little bit of context for us as, as this is a very familiar passage, I'm sure, and I'll, I'll try to do my best to bring some things out of it that I, maybe are somewhat new to us. If we know what the palm branches uh, are symbolic of and they were used in celebration for total victory, the response of the crowd is very spectacular and they shout, Hosanna, which in the Hebrew is a term that means save us now, which has this expression of praise. In fact, what they are professing is, is from the Psalms. These people are, are, are literally singing the Psalms, singing the Bible as Jesus is uh, being led into Jerusalem. And this will eventually be a big letdown, however, for the Jewish community. Because of what we can kind of assume that their expectation did not necessarily um, meet what Jesus was doing, if that makes sense. And in fact, let me unpack that just for a little bit as, as we would know that the Jewish community was perhaps some of them looking for a king to come and to rid them of Roman oppression. And, and, and what we'll find out Pretty soon, as this is the lead into Passion Week, where Christ is about, where their king is about to be crucified on a criminal's cross. And so there's a lot of disappointment that will be had with this Jewish people. A couple of things that I want to point out, and I, I hope I can try to get some, some meaning to all of this, this that we just read. There, I want you to notice that, and I, and I don't think this is worth to be in passing, I think this is worth to be noted, that Jesus wanted to be noticed. I don't think there's a doubt in my mind that Jesus is doing all of these things that he wanted to be noticed. If you'll notice from our, our reading that Jesus had arrived in Jerusalem from the east and he's coming down from Jericho Road. If you remember that from last week, he'd come in a fairly substantial crowd, it would seem. There would be a crowd who was moving in front of him, as we read. There was a crowd that was moving behind him. There's a crowd laying cloaks in front of him. There's a crowd laying palm branches in front of him. In fact, I would suggest that what Jesus has deliberately done here is he has staged this particular event. What do you mean by stage this particular event? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question because you all look so awake this morning that you're asking all of these questions to me. I mean that he staged it. That he, he literally said, he planned it, he conceived of it, he determined that this was, perhaps with Old Testament in mind, that this is how he's going to make his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Jesus staged this entry into Jerusalem. Now, notice how he did that. You see that he rode in with what? On a donkey. I can't find in the Gospels, I can't find anywhere else. Maybe you can find it. You can tell me later. Shed some light for me. I can't find it anywhere else in the New Testament where Jesus actually rode in on a donkey or where Jesus was actually riding on something. I mean, have you ever read that? I haven't. Maybe I missed it. All right, it's very likely because when I'm reading, sometimes I have ADD and I get sidetracked. So maybe you've seen it. You can tell me later. But Jesus, this is the only time where I think Jesus is actually riding on a donkey. Now, there's a lot of significance in this. In fact, there's extra biblical uh, secular writings, and I think I would, I would agree with them, that 
Upon Passover, when people are making the pilgrimage, there was actually like these, not a, not a, a law or a command where it, was, where it was highly suggested, where they would actually walk and make the journey with their feet. In fact, if you were disabled and you weren't able to make that long uh, pilgrimage, then they would just suggest you just don't even take the journey. So it was suggested for the people from extra biblical uh, literature that we have that if you're going to make this journey for the Passover, you are supposed to use your feet and walk and make this journey. Now, I don't know why I'm not going to get into the significance of all of that, but it's interesting that that is placed there, but Jesus chose not to walk this journey to Passover by ways of his feet. He uses a method that we haven't seen yet in the, in the Gospels, at least in our study of, God, of Mark. We see that Jesus is using a donkey. Jesus chooses to ride into Jerusalem, and in doing so, again, I want to make this point, he's doing this so that he will be noticed. Now, that's quite, <laughs> that's quite a little different from how we've seen Jesus in his method of operation when he heals people, what does he do? Don't tell nobody. Stay, stay quiet. Just keep it to yourself. Right? Isn't that the, the typical language of Jesus? But now we see from the, 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 the way of Jesus and how he's making his entrance is that he wants to be noticed. And in some sense, he's doing this so he's throwing down the gauntlet, basically. In fact, I would have you turn to Zechariah because I believe Jesus has this in mind, perhaps. I don't have this on the screen for you, but in Zechariah, you don't have to turn that. I could just read it to you. Zechariah chapter 9. In fact, if you look at Zechariah, the header over Zechariah 9 before verse number 9, it says, the coming king of Zion. Now, I'll just read two verses for you for time's sake. Rejoice greatly. Again, Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now notice what happens. There's a shift here. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river and to the ends of the earth. Now, this, of course, is pointing to multiple fulfillments uh, so often that exist in prophetic words. Now, if we were to look at how prophecy works in the Old Testament, it's like hiking. You get to the top. It's like hiking in Utah. Let me, let, me, let me better specify that if I can. Because if you hike in Georgia, it's just plateau. But if you hike, now not in all Georgia, but the place, parts I was in. Now, if you hike in Utah, you hike up a mountain. You think you've reached. But what do you see? More mountains to climb, more hills, more canyons to crawl through if you're brave enough. I don't fancy myself from falling off a 2,000-foot cliff. Maybe you do, but don't because I don't want to do your certain funeral. And you, so so, so when, you, when, you view, when you see a prophecy, you think, oh, here we go. We're at the top. But no, you read another one, and there's another hill to climb. And that's how you ought to view this particular, and in fact, a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament. 
So in this prophecy, you have a fulfillment of Christ, or you have Christ fulfilling verse number nine. He'll come in with a colt and with a donkey. He'll come in with this. And then, and then you get a prophetic statement in verse 10 that still awaits the totality of its fulfillment. Now, I know this is going to be a little deep, but just hang with me for just a second. In other words, the fulfillment of nine happened with Jesus Christ coming in on the donkey on the colt. But the fulfillment of verse 10 has not quite happened yet. And it will happen on the second coming of Christ. Now do you understand that there's a lot of eschatological um, end-time references just in the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ? That Jesus Christ has come and that Jesus Christ will one day make a triumphant return and all of those who are a part of the fold of Christ will be with him forever. Now, how we get there, what happens pre-post, whatever, I mean, that's for you to decide. You got a brain, you can use it. But just know in the end that there will be a day where he will not be coming in on a, on a donkey anymore. But he'll be coming on a white horse and he'll have king of kings and lord of lords on his thigh. And he will come to rule and we will be with him forever. Now, that was free 99 and you can just take that and uh, sip your coffee afterwards and ponder the thoughts of how that's going to happen. And let me know if you figure it all out. Now, notice this. In John chapter uh, 12, in his account, uh, we, we see how the disciples... <laughs> how the disciples are continuing in their method of operation by not understanding what is completely happening. In fact, if you, um, in fact they, they understood exactly what happened by looking over their shoulders after what happened. In fact, we get this from 1 Peter uh, verse number 1, 1 Peter 1.10, concerning this salvation, the prophets, and that's including Zechariah here in, that we just read in chapter 9, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, that's what Zechariah was doing. He's speaking of the grace that's going to come. Peter says, see your king comes to you. When the prophets spoke of the grace that was to come to you, they searched intently and with the greatest care. And what they were doing in verse 11 is they were trying to find out the time, the circumstances of which Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And it was revealed to them, Peter says, that they were not serving themselves. And that's very helpful because what we can determine from what Zechariah has prophesied, that there will be this cult, there will be this king that rides in on a donkey, that surely Zechariah had this realization that this prophecy is not going to happen right now, but this is going to be something that's happening in future generations to come. And what happens, Jesus comes in on a donkey and he makes a triumphant arrival. Now note that he makes an arrival on a donkey. Now what kind of donkey was it? It was an unridden donkey. See to it that you go get the donkey that's never been ridden on. Right? That was the instruction. I perhaps would imagine in today's... Um, 
today's culture, I, I would tell uh, Jose, hey, Jose, tell the dude that drives a Lamborghini in Cedar City. Have y'all seen that? Like, what's he do for a living? I need to know. <laughs> Go tell him that one of the pastors needs the Lambo. And, and, and Jose goes, hola, my name is Jose, and I want to take your Lamborghini because the pastor said he needs it. The guy's like, okay, that's a grand idea. Never met you. I'll, I'll give it to you. Jose comes back with the Lamborghini. And I drive off into the sunset and you never see me again. Jesus just goes and he's like, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a donkey. It's going to be right here at this place. And I need you to make sure uh, that you go get it. If, if the dude just, if he, if he asks you about it, just tell him, you know what, I'm just doing what I was told. And he'll say yes and just tell him you'll bring it back. It's an unridden donkey. And that has a lot of significance to it, doesn't it? Because, because when you are talking about the significance and the fact that a donkey had never been written upon, uh, you, you may be thinking about Old Testament prophecy. Again, God, when he selects a heifer or when he's selecting an animal to be used, um, it, it was uh, someone or, or an animal that was unyoked or unridden. It was a spotless. There's our imagery. It was a spotless lamb. It was to be unyoked, unridden. Which is why the king of the universe would choose a donkey because it was unridden. It was spotless. It was unused. Because again, Jesus is fulfilling much of the Old Testament prophecy that was pointing to him. It's an incredible paradox. Riding in, on a, riding in as a king on a donkey with very much purpose. I was reading a theologian, James Denny, and he says this, and he says, Christ's death is not an incident of his life. It is the aim of it. The laying down of his life is not an accident in his career, but his vocation. In it, the divine purpose of his life is revealed. Jesus is being very purposeful here as he sits upon a donkey, as he's moving up to the city, we see what Jesus is doing. And all the people are shouting, Hosanna. And all the people are saying, praise God. And maybe there's people in the crowd that maybe are putting the pieces of the puzzle together and they're seeing all the significance of the Old Testament prophecies coming together in one conclusive event right in front of them, unfolding before their eyes. And maybe they joined in with the cries of the people, God save, Hosanna, God deliver. I wonder if that's been your prayer. Not in a sense in how some of them might have meant it. Oh, God, save me from the tyrannical leadership of the United States government. Not in that way. But, oh, God, save me from the tyrannical leadership of the sin that is controlling my life. God, redeem me from my shame. God, redeem me from my past. Is that the cry of your heart? I mean, how would you expect a prince of peace to come? I, I, would, I, would, I would flip through pictures of history books and you see how the coronation of um, Queen Elizabeth, I mean, they put on quite the spectacle. And I imagine they'll do the, quite the, the same for, for old, old, old 
sure him, whatever his name is, that apparently has no significance in American history anyway, because we don't care about the British. But imagine for a second, like the coronation of the king and all the, the pageantry and the, the spectacle that comes with it. Yet Jesus chooses not to use those types of things to make way into the city in which he will be led to the slaughterhouse. It defies all understanding. And what Christ is doing in this moment is ushering in a kingdom that is going to come as a result of weakness conquering apparent strength. And if, I, and if I just had one thing that I would say to us, it, it, just to remember from this passage, is that what Christ is doing is he is ushering in a kingdom that will be conquered through weakness, not through strength. Now, isn't that interesting? You know, all of these pieces of the puzzle of Mark are now coming into fruition to some of us now. To where we have seen Jesus use emphatic language. You cannot get the kingdom unless you are little and insignificant. You cannot understand the kingdom unless you are weak or unless you are like one of these slaves. And now we will see in a complete fruition that the kingdom will be ushered into by weakness and conquered by suffering. It is an incredible, incredible thing. Now, why? Let me, let me just give a way of, of application, if I can, just a couple of points here. Uh, and I think, why should any of this matter? And I think it's a good question because you probably just heard me give like a, a teaching lesson that, that probably deserved to be in its own uh, teaching setting. But I, I want to just kind of unpack it and, and ask a question. You remember that what the crowds are, 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 are saying, and it's from Psalm 118. And it's a beautiful psalm, but in the psalm, there's verse 24 and 25, and, they, and they, it's two things. And this is what the people are crying out. O Lord, save us, and O Lord, make us successful. It's a direct quote from the psalm. Again, like I said, when Jesus is trotting in on the little donkey, they are singing the psalms. And the psalms that they're singing is one of, one of protect us. And give us success. Protect us and give us success. Jesus, I want you to make us safe. And Jesus, I want you to be, make us successful. Now, again, this is, this is largely conjecture, but I believe that we could probably all agree that this is some of their sentiments because of how they respond when he's being crucified. That what they mean by make us safe and give us success is probably viewed through the boundaries of make make our families safe make our borders safe right because roman oppression make our borders safe and and make us safe in our careers make us safe financially and and also while you're making us safe financially bring us much success financially make us successful in our families make us successful as a nation of a people surely that's what some of these people are crying out as they are quoting verbatim from the psalm make us safe i want to be successful 
make us safe. I wouldn't be successful. In fact, it's so interesting to me that as I read through the Bible, I always am just drawn to like, how have, how have we progressed really? Have we really progressed any? And the answer is no. Well, I've got an iPhone. Jesus didn't. Okay, whoop-de-doo. Well, we have technology that some of you could probably do without. There it is. I know it is. In, in, in our heart, we are praying the same thing that they were shouting and, and, and proclaiming 2,000 years ago. But, but, but the motivation of our heart is not to keep me safe from sin. It is not to keep me successful in the eyes of Christ because the motivation of our heart is the same. I mean, it's 2023 in America. Come on. We want safety. We want our borders safe, right? I don't know why I'd say that with such a southern slang. But we do. We want our family safe. We want my yard. I want my yard safe. Get off my yard. I'm that old guy. Stay off my lawn. Build the fence. Put a lock on my door. Come through the door. You'll find out what happens. Right? We want safety. I want my family to be safe. I want my kids to be safe. I want my finance. I want my, I want, and sadly, this is a prayer for some of us today. I want my bank to be safe. And then, and then we want to be successful. I want my family, I want my kids to be successful. I want my, 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 my job. I want to be successful in my work. I want to be successful in all these things. And now we may not say it like that, but we will say, I just want to be happy. As if that's like why Christ came for us. And I would suggest that what you mean by happy, if you were to unpack that, it would still be the same thing. Give me safety. Give me prosperity. Make me successful. And I wonder if that's our prayer. I want a Jesus who can give me safety and success. Instead of saying, I want Jesus to give me safety from evil, safety from my sin. And what success would look like then is for me to lay down my life and follow Christ. And what success and the prayer of success would be then would be to say, I want to lay down my life. I want to lay down my dreams. I want to lay down what I am chasing after, my aspirations, the relationships that I shouldn't be. And I want to lay all those things aside. And, I, and, and success will be found when I'm standing before the Father. And the Father says, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's success. When I'm being faithful to the cause of Christ, not to the cause of Matthew Thrower. And there's, a, there's an error and there's a danger within all of our hearts. It's crying out for a Jesus that would give us the things that we think he should give us and the things that we deserve. But as we have found, 
how Jesus responds to people. And the cry of these people hasn't been, and I'm thinking last week of the blind Bartimaeus, God, have mercy on me. He didn't, he didn't say, look, I deserve, you know, you know I, I've been blind my whole life. I mean, I think Jesus, you, ought to, you know, like, just whip around some new stuff for me. Like, I'll take a cult. I've been blind my whole life. No, what is it? The, the cry of his heart, have mercy on his God. Understanding the things that you think you need aren't the things that you really need, but the thing that you most need is for Christ to give you safety from your sin and success. And what success is, is you laying down your life and following him. That's success. I think back in just a few chapters ago when the paralytic man came through and, 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 and you know, they're done with their whatever they're doing. They're doing a little Bible study, I suppose. And, 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 and you know, the guys, his friends, they bring him up onto the roof. And you got to know this is quite the task, carrying around just like this dude who can't move. And maybe he's 100 pounds, maybe he's 300, I don't know. And so if he was in America, he'd probably 300 pounds. But maybe he's going and, he's, and, he's, and they lifted him. They, they break open the roof and they lift him down. And, and, and Jesus says, your sins have been forgiven. Wouldn't it be so interesting if the paralytic man said, you know what? I don't think I need my sins forgiven. I need safety because I've been bedridden. You see, all these jokers coming up here, they're trying to steal my stuff, Jesus. No, I don't need, I don't need to save, I need to save me from my sins. I, I need success because I've been lame my whole life. Not like lame in the context of your spouse. Literally could not move. And, 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 and he responds rightly because Jesus looks at him and says, because the real issue that you're facing isn't that you're paralytic. The real issue is that you need to be saved from your sins. Let me just a couple more points. It's, it, again, I want to just point out that how, how Jesus chooses to be noticed is quite, it's quite, it's quite, quite remarkable. Um, and I find it really interesting in this, to realize um, that he wants to be noticed. And, and that's, you know, you would expect there to be the carriages of horses and, and, and the military to usher him in. But, but that's not what occurs um, if you're a king, like, and you're talking to Jesus, like, why? Are we sure we want this donkey stuff? I mean, it just seems so, you know, weird and, and everything. And it, and I think what Jesus is trying to to point out to us is that Jesus is not an unapproachable king. Here's what I mean by that. If you, if you look at the other four sections, or sorry, the other three sections. In Matthew 21, Mark 11, John 12, Luke 19. And, and, I, and I look because if, we, if we're thinking in terms of hermeneutics, the study of the scripture, how do we interpret scripture? We look at the other passages that are around it and the other references to it. And so when we see the reference of Luke 19, Mark 11, John 12, Matthew 21, I, I see a few, a few words here. And I, and I hope this will make sense in, in how approachable how Jesus is. First, we see him sitting on a donkey. Secondly, we see him weeping over the city. Third, we see him looking around the temple. And fourthly, we see him seeking those who will admit to their lostness, to their need of a, to their need of a, a king to rid them of, of the rule of the topsy-turviness of the world that they're living in. 
which for me would, would, would suggest that this is a king who wants us to approach him and to come because if he came with all the pageantry, if he came with all of the, you know, the, all the, you know, the bands and the, the, the carriages of horses and armies, well, that just signifies uh, uh, right out. You can approach this guy. He's like some of the celebrity pastors that got their own, you know, like, you know, posse around them. You can't, can't go talk to the pastor. But that's not what Jesus did. Right here in the triumphant entry before his suffering. He's sitting on a donkey. He's weeping over the city. He's seeking out the, those who have discovered their lostness. He's looking around the temple searching for people. Wondering why have you made this temple out to be a target? I don't think he uses the word target. But why have you made this into a marketplace? And you've ostracized the people of God to have access to God. That's, that's an approachable king. And for those of you who think you have, you have some deist thinking that, that, you know, God is up in the heavens and, and what a deist would say is that he's just kind of lifted his hands off and, you know, I'll leave the matters and the affairs of life to you. That's, that's not the God we serve. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible would be one who is a monotheist and, and where's one God and one God who comes down. And, and as we saw last week, one, one God who comes down and he hears the cries of his people and he doesn't just march on, he stops. He doesn't march into a city with, with, with the big groups of people. He sits on a donkey. Why? Because our king is approachable. And you can approach our king. You know, the, the veil that was torn it was the flesh of Christ that was torn that made way possible for us to go into the Holy of Holies to have direct access to Christ. And you know you have access to Christ. You don't have to go through means of a priest or a bishop. And you don't have to, you know, email one of the pastors and you're like, you know what, I don't think I can pray for myself, but I'm going to have to have you do it. No, you no. You have the same access to God as, as any believer. Do you know that the king is approachable? Do you know that? It, lastly, and I just want to close out with, with a thought from another theologian, and I'm almost done. A theologian, D.A. Carson, if you don't know that name, jot that name down and, and read some of his commentaries because it would benefit you in your walk with Christ. D.A. Carson says that there are three things that stand out to him in the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ. First, the coming of the king is associated with the end of the war. Now again, <laughs> flipping kingdoms upside down, this is a war of sin. And if we think in terms of end times, that there's also a time where there will be no more war, but there will be the ultimate peace of God ruling and reigning. And then he says, secondly, the coming of king is associated with peace to the nations. And thirdly, he says, the coming of the king is associated with the blood of God's covenant that spells release for prisoners. That in just a matter of a few days, the Christ's triumphal entry, Christ goes before what awaits him, the pain and suffering of the cross, where his blood and his flesh will be torn. And 
making way access for us to go before the Father. Thank you.